can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Lord willing, today we'll cover verses 16 down through verse 24. The title of this sermon is, Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. Your Sorrow Will Turn Into Joy. That's taken straight out of the text here, as we will see in verse 20. You know, I'm always amazed at God's providence around different holidays. You all know that I never know how far I'm going to get in the Scriptures until Sunday. And the Lord directs that. And you see, once again, is there a more fitting Scripture that you can think of for Easter, for celebrating resurrection than this? Jesus saying, a little while and you'll see me no longer. Then a little while you're going to see me. There's this joy after a night of sorrow. And I, I pray that God would, would speak truth to us concerning this today. Now, before I get into the text, I'll ask you at this time if you're able to stand with me. And we'll read verses 16 through 24 together. Beginning in verse 16 of John 16. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Thank you. you may be seated. As you're being seated, I will ask you to go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father. O oh Lord, we come together here this morning to consider the, consider the very center of of Christianity, the heart of our hope and our joy, the guarantee and satisfaction for our souls. Father, I pray that you would meet with us now, that this timeless truth would stir within us a genuine rejoicing. Oh God, not a superficial joy that fades, but one that cannot be taken away. Oh God, I ask that you would indeed guard me from error. 
Oh, Father, let us see into the depths of your perfect wisdom. God, I ask for boldness, for authority and power from on high. That your Holy Spirit would attend this message now and lead and guide in all ways. Father, stamp eternity on our eyelids and give us a rejoicing that redounds to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You recall the last week we were considering what it means to experience the Holy Spirit. We saw Jesus said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And we saw what those things worked out actually are applied to. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit's going to convict of the person of Jesus Christ. How else do you define or understand sin except for looking at the righteousness of God? And how can you know the righteousness of God apart from the person of Christ and the ultimate demonstration of God's judgment against sin is seen in Jesus' own cross. That is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to show us Christ and give us joy at the presence of Christ. And today, we go on a little further. Jesus continues ministering to His disciples. And we see in verse 16, a little while, and you will see Me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see Me. Now, it's easy for us to forget something about a text like this. And in order for us to rightly understand the weight of the words that are in front of us now, we really need to be reminded that this is spoken in the context of a historical narrative. What does that mean? That these words that are coming to us today, they have a context. And not only do they have an immediate impact on the lives of the disciples, we'll consider that. There's an immediate effect on the disciples But they have got to be understood in the context of the entire history of the human race, particularly the nation of Israel. It would be easy for us to forget that all of the scriptures that we have, all of them are related to history. And there are varying genres and you've got to read the scriptures according to what style of writing it is. For example, some of the scriptures are given to us as poetry. And in poetry, there's a different communication style than just a historical narrative or wisdom literature like the Psalms and Proverbs and even metaphors often seen throughout the scriptures. And yet, even with all the varying styles of writing, this book in front of you is only understood in the context of history. Even those other styles or genres of literature, we have to understand that they were given to a people in a particular context. Why am I making this point today? Why am I pressing this? Why is it important? So much that is talked about in the name of Christianity is spoken of in terms of ideas. I thought of this, Kevin, I see often Kevin will bring and he'll start to say, well, the idea is, and then I'll stop and correct himself and say, well, not really idea, the truth, the fact of the scriptures. And I appreciate that because so much of what is talked about when it comes to Christ is presented as an idea or a thought or a theory. We're not talking about ideas merely. We're talking about historical facts. In other words, this has something to do with reality. And that we we don't see the religion that we express as merely circular. Think about this. Many people, especially in Eastern religions, they imagine their lives to be like one cart on a Ferris wheel, just going round and round and round. And when you don't see that these things are coming to us historically, 
then you're going to see your life as only repeating a series of rotations on a wheel. But when you see that God has communicated His truth to us in the context of history, and that His story, God's story, is written in the lives of actual people who lived and who died, it reminds us that the same thing is awaiting us. Do you see the point? History tells us that life is linear. That God had a purpose that starts here and is progressing towards an end. And everyone that's between this beginning point and this end point are united in that we're moving towards an end. It's not just going on repeating forever. That means it impacts us. You see, every person who is born must die. You thought about this. You have a birth date. You have a death date. And that dash between your birth and your death, that is the place in which you exist in history. That's your place in history is that dash that your life has lived. One day you're going to die and people are going to talk about things you did and said in the past tense. They used to do this. They used to do that. We have a place in history. It's a sad thing to me that so many people, I even heard just this week a reference made, there's a question asked and some kids were trying to figure out the answer and it was having to do with history. And the prompt was, what's a class most kids don't like in school? The answer is supposed to be history. That's a shame. It really is a shame because when we detach our understanding of truth from history, then everything becomes relative and limited to experience. This is significant in our context today for a number, a number of reasons. But the fact that God communicates to us in history means that all of the human race is collectively coming towards a particular end. That we're all part of something that began in the garden in the beginning and that will end on the last day. What I'm telling you is that history is not limited to stories about people that went before us with no bearing on our lives here today. History is the continued, continued unfolding of God's purpose. And we are all united to what has happened before. How? How is it that we're united to what has happened before? No matter how great or how small a person may be, and regardless of a person's color or their creed, every single person, is born into this world and every single person must die. You see, we've got a starting point and an ending point. My question is, what is your place in history? And how do these things relate to Jesus here? This is very, very important. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while you'll see me. What historical relevance does this have on the way these disciples would react to this statement? Why historically, in light of this being told to them, would this have bothered them? I mentioned already from Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the historical picture. God created man perfect, upright in the garden in the beginning. Man rebelled and sinned. And as a result of man's sin, God says there's a curse placed on you and there's this promise given. There's going to be a seed, an offspring to deal with this issue. This is going to be immediately relevant to our thoughts today. That from the fall in the beginning, every single person who was looking to God's provision was expectantly hoping in one who would bruise this serpent's head. And not only that, but put an end to death. You see, this is the context. God says, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate of it. Death entered the world. And it continued on all the way up until this Jesus. 
Think about this. These Jewish disciples grow up learning about a God who's promised a Messiah who's going to take care of death. So when Jesus says, you'll see me no more, that's got catastrophic implications to their hope. They're hoping for a Messiah who's going to deliver them from death, not die himself. You see the importance of this, understanding these things happening in the context of history. You see, the death of every person who had died before Christ was the final testimony that they could not possibly be the seed who would bruise the serpent's head. If you die, you can't deliver from the curse of death, can you? How can you deliver from death if you yourself are dead? Remember from Matthew chapter 16, if you want to look there just briefly with me, Matthew chapter 16, to get a flavor for the context that these disciples are hearing this truth. Matthew 16, look with me, beginning at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. That's the explanation for Peter's strong response. These disciples are completely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah they've been expecting. That's what they're convinced that he's the one who's supposed to deliver them from death in every way. And think about this. All of Jesus miraculous works are a testimony that he has power to deliver from death. Consider these things. Jesus has healed sickness. Sickness leads to death. Here's one who's got a power over sickness that leads to death. Jesus has fed them. Hunger, starvation. He's got power over death by starvation. He's delivered them from oppression through demons that lead to death. He's got the power over death. He even has power over the weather. He can control tornadoes and hurricanes and storms. He's got the power over the elements that produce death. How could the one with power over all of these things die? You see, these disciples, historically, contextually, they're holding fast to the hope that Jesus was going to bruise the serpent's head. But they failed to see the necessity of him having his heel bruised. Now, do you know anybody today that is religious or talks about Jesus who has a similar hope? You know anyone who rejoices at the prospect that Jesus can deliver them from suffering, but they pay little attention to the fact that Jesus, his own suffering was necessary and the reason why it was necessary. You know, I just saw a post this week from uh, something that was said by Ben Shapiro, famous uh, Jewish, uh, I guess, political speaker, very intelligent man, very sharp man. And yet he says that repentance Apart from Christ, mind you, that repentance, that we're basically able to absolve ourselves and become righteous through repentance apart from Christ. You see, as a man who doesn't see the need for an atonement to be made, now he would say that he would, but he would define it in a different way. The point is, here's people who are looking to a, 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 a deliverance from death and from suffering without realizing Christ's own need to suffer. <clears throat> These disciples... They're not alone, the ones that we're looking at here. You recall from Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, you recall the picture on the road to Emmaus? 
His disciples of Jesus. He's died. He's buried. He's in the grave. And it ruined their whole life. They're disturbed and distracted. Why? The expression they say, we had hoped that it had been He who was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. He's the Messiah. We hoped He was the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah if He's dead, can He? Jesus happens upon them and says, what are you guys so upset about? And begins talking with them. And they're pouring their heart out to Him about all the things they've been hoping for about Christ. And then we find this in verse 25 and 26. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter His glory? Notice this. The confusion about the centrality of Jesus' suffering often leads people to completely misunderstand what they're hearing. You see this? If you don't understand the necessity of Christ's suffering, not only the necessity of it, but the centrality of it. Paul puts it this way, we determine to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The cross, the centerpiece of the Christian religion. They didn't understand the necessity of His death. That's what we're seeing. When you don't understand that, it'll lead you to be confused and misunderstand what you're hearing. In our context today, these disciples almost totally ignore the reference to Jesus' death. And they're distracted by an expression in the text, a little while. Jesus has been saying this. He's saying, you're not going to see me and then you're going to see me. They don't have a clue what that means. But notice what their focus is on in these verses. Verses 17 and 18. Some of His disciples said to one another, what is this that He says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They don't understand that. And then watch verse 18. So they were saying, what does He mean by a little while? We do not know what He's talking about. I find this to be fascinating. Very interesting. Do you see the tendency that's demonstrated in these verses? The tendency of men... Notice how they're confused at Jesus' Word and that causes them to begin discussing it among themselves and how quickly they get distracted from the primary point. Whenever people consult with one another, and Jesus makes a reference to that in a coming verse, but whenever people, when we begin to consult with one another in order to figure out what truth is, to find understanding or meaning, inevitably the result is that we'll be drawn away from the truth and led into vain arguments. Think of this. They say they're stymied by the expression a little while. What does he mean? That's the thing they focus on. They're not focused primarily. Yes, they ask, why does he say that a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you'll see me. But then the focus, the expression that they focus on in verse 18 out of verse 17 is this. What does this a little while mean? Now think about this. Christianity today is filled with people who focus their attention on asking the same question. They want to know, what does Jesus mean by a little while? He's telling them, I'm going away. I'm coming again. You're going to not see me, then you're going to see me. Trying to measure, what's that span of time in between that first event and the second event? Focusing on something that's not even the primary point. You see, people are always trying to figure out how close we are to the end. To the end times. How close are we to Jesus' ultimate return? That's the questions people. Jesus said in the book of Revelation. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. And how much 
of Christianity is focused on answering the question, how soon is soon? How do we measure and determine and know for sure? Okay, I know that people have been doing this for years, trying to predict Christ's return and missing something greater, more important. How many people have been distracted from the gospel by consulting with one another over questions like these? As we're going to see in our text, Jesus doesn't even begin to deal with their question about what does a little while mean? He doesn't focus on that for a host of reasons, I'm sure. But here's the point. The business of the church today is not to be arguing about the uncertain amount of time, uncertain amount of time until his coming again. But listen, the certainty of his coming and all that he has accomplished. That's the focus here. We, we're going to see in Jesus response. He doesn't focus primarily on that expression a little while. He says, let me explain to you. There's going to be rejoicing and fullness of joy because you are going to see me again. That's his focus. You see, God, back to the original point, God has acted in history and he's given us a message of what? What is gospel? It's good news to proclaim, not an unending and uncertain task filled with charts which lead to more questions, but a certain hope fixed in what's been accomplished in history. This is life giving. This takes the question mark out of what we're called to do, doesn't it? When we see we're given a message to proclaim that's certain that has been accomplished. The next verse 19, we see exactly how Jesus answers their confusion. It says Jesus knew that they wanted to ask. him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. I believe we see demonstrated in this verse another wonderful expression of the gracious character of Jesus. You, know, you might expect in this context for Jesus to begin rebuking these disciples because of their ignorance. We already read back in Matthew that Jesus has already been telling them that he's going to die and rise three days later. He's already told them that. Wouldn't it be a little bit frustrating to continually come up against this confusion at his words? And yet, rather than harshly rebuking them, he tenderly addresses their concern. And he woos and draws and directs them back to the most important truth. You see, Jesus, he knew their questions. He knew their needs. They didn't even have to ask. It reminds me, does it remind you of what Jesus says about the father in Matthew six, verse eight, talking about praying? And he says, don't be like them, the Gentiles and pagans. He says, don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask. Him. Your father knows Jesus knows and I believe it's the Lord's willingness to lovingly answer our questions and our concerns that set before us here, even when we don't have the courage to ask him, what should that produce in you? When you see Jesus fully aware of their confusion and their questions, he comes to them and says, I'm going to let it be known to you. I'm going to help you in your weakness. Does that not motivate you to bring your concerns to him? With even confidence, the fact that he's willing to answer even when you haven't even asked. Now, the point to remember in this is even as with these disciples focusing on what does a little while mean, Jesus may not answer the way you'd like him to, but he will answer according to what is most needed. 
You bring your concerns to Him, trusting He's going to answer according to what you need. Verse 20, He goes on and says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Ah, what grace, love, selflessness is on display here. I keep driving at the historical context, but think about this. What is the historical context of this conversation right here? What is it? This is the night before Jesus would be crucified. He's a mere hours before He's going to come under the curse of God's wrath and fierce displeasure. He's about to drink the cup of God's wrath and He knew exactly what that meant. And yet He's focused on His disciples. What would you be doing if you knew tomorrow I'm facing the judgment of God's wrath? Would you be investing in other people? Or would your soul be so torn within you that you could only focus on the fear of what's coming? We're going to see a picture of that wrestling internally in the coming chapters in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at this point, even immediately before his cross, his selfless love investing in those whom he cared about, he's focusing on ministering to them. Now, at this point, we need to realize that all of history is divided by two contrasted truths. And every single person's experience is going to be described to one degree or another by these varying terms. You can divide all of life into these two realities. And they're in our text and they're going to be important for our understanding today. What are they? On the one hand, life. This is what's set before you today. Life and death. Or death and life. That's in this text. Death and life. Another expression would be pain and healing. Pain and healing. Loss and gain. Grave and resurrection. Sin and righteousness. And ultimately in our text, sorrow and joy. That's what divides every experience of life to one degree or another. And here, the first thing we see is there's going to be sorrow. You're going to weep and lament sorrow. Every ounce of suffering, every bit of misery is the result of sin and it leads to death. When you see Jesus dying on the cross, you ought to be reminded of every ounce of suffering in the world represented in that one moment. Right there as He hangs upon the cross. That's death. That's the result. That's what sin leads to is death. And I'm struck as well again this week. The system of this world. The system of this world. This culture and nation that we even live in. Is a culture of death. It's a culture of death. You see it all around you. Thought of this a news headline I read this week after this confused and mentally ill young lady goes in and shoots and kills people in a Christian school thinking that she wants to try to be a boy and the confusion and insanity of that, it leads to death. And the news headline reads on this news station, trans people under threat of violence. How backwards can you get? 
It's death and it leads to death. And that's just one small picture of this. It's a culture of death. You see, the world rejoices in death. This is the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the world is that it celebrates death on the one hand and then fears it on the other. You think about this. People terrified to die, doing everything they can to prolong their life through medicine and education and food, diet, all of these things and slaughtering one another left and right, whether in the womb through abortion or eliminating life and the homosexuality that cannot produce children or offspring or this trans movement. It's all producing death. It's not producing life. This is the system in which we live. And yet, on the other hand, how many of them can come to die with confidence with a hope that goes beyond the grave. Testimony after testimony of atheists as they come to their last day and there's no hope, nothing but fear and anxiety because of death. And the death of every person who dies, not only the death, but the fear of death that we all have is the final testimony of God against us. The fact that you're afraid to die is your conscience telling you there's a God in eternity on the other side of that death. And we are under a curse and have been from the fall we heard about in the beginning. There's a curse. We've got to read these words, this weeping and lamenting and sorrow and understand there's no such thing as weeping, lament and sorrow apart from sin and a curse. My question is this, how can the tragic horrors of death and sorrow be turned into joy? How can you face death with any sense of victory or hope? Consider the insanity of measuring your own goodness before God and expecting to prevail, expecting to be accepted and to prevail before almighty God. To get the weight of what we're hearing, just turn with me for a moment to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Here's the question. I'm reading about weeping, lamenting, and sorrow. And a world that hates God rejoicing at the death of His Son. I'm asking, where's the victory in that? All of that representing a curse. Galatians 3, begin in verse 10. For all... Who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What victory is there in this weeping, lamenting and sorrow and rejoicing world at the death of Christ? He actually became a curse, was treated as though he was one who had not kept the law of God. Here's my question for you. Does God's requirement of perfect righteousness, that's what you read. No one is going to be justified by keeping the law because we've all sinned. So we're under this curse. 
Does God's requirement of perfect righteousness in order to live and escape this curse, does that requirement end just because Jesus died? Just because he hung on that cross? Just because they saw him no longer? Did Jesus abolish the righteous requirement of the law? Does God no longer require this of you? That's the question. We've got to answer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin. Is it any wonder that these disciples should be sorrowful? I've been driving at this point. The One who is supposed to deliver them from sin and death has been made sin. This Jesus was cursed by God and treated as though he were actually guilty of all the sins of all of his people for all time. Can you imagine the the nature of this cup of wrath? We're not talking about the cup of wrath against one sin by one person, but all the sins of all his people for all time, all upon him. That's how God treated him. If you ever wonder. If God is actually going to bring judgment and wrath against sin, just consider what He did to His own Son. Consider what He did to the One whom He had loved for all eternity whenever He was treated as though He were guilty. How is it that anyone could ever overcome a death such as this? What reason could there be for joy at all? Jesus says, Again, a little while and you'll see me again. He's going to this cross. They're not going to see him. The fullness of God's wrath on him. And yet you're going to see me. You see, the grave wasn't the end for him. And there's joy and there's rejoicing to be had on the other side of it. Though he bore the sins of his people. This Jesus had no sin of his own. You have to come under the significance of the thought that Jesus died under the weight and wrath of God because of sin and his disciples. There's sorrow because of sin and death. And yet this is what Jesus told them before. No one takes it from me. What? No one takes what from you? No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Here's what he's saying. You can't take my life from me. I'm laying it down. I'm raised. I'm going to raise again. I've got authority to take it up again. That's the charge. That's how there can be hope and victory and rejoicing in this. Just I want to read Peter's expression of this to you from Acts chapter two. You don't have to turn there. You can take this down. Verses 22 32, with this question on your mind, God's requirement is perfection. All who sin are under a curse. Jesus was made under a curse for us. And Peter says this on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was no accident. It was according to his purpose. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Why? What's your hope, David? For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Wonderful. Good thing David's such a holy guy, right? No sin in that guy, right? No. David's not talking about himself here. And he goes on. Peter says this to us. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. If you see the death of Christ through the world's eyes, you will scoff and rejoice. If you see the death of Christ, even as these who crucified Him, you're going to be mocking. You're going to be, as we sing among the crowd, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. You would be one saying crucify Him. If you see the death of Christ through the world's eyes, But if you see the death of Christ through the lens of his word, according to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you will be filled with a godly sorrow. That's what we heard about last week, a godly grief. As you see, the wrath of God that Jesus bore was according to your sin. Your sin was what God treated him according to. And so long as Jesus remained in that grave, there could be no joy for you. If the son of God, think on this. If the Son of God, when having your sin laid upon Him, was not able to overcome the wrath of God, how on earth will you? If Jesus could not overcome the the curse of the sin that you committed, how are you going to hope to do so? And yet, He didn't stay dead. That's the glory of what we're seeing. Jesus bursting forth in victory and triumphing over the grave. He's bursting forth. And in light of this victory at the cross, we're promised joy. The sorrows of life, the suffering of death we can face with even anticipation that it's not going to end for us with death. There's a hope beyond the grave. And we can say these things. We hope we sing them. But is there something in your soul that faces sorrow in life and says, I know there's more for me in Christ. He's risen and there's hope because of that. Not just something I say. This anticipation he illustrates for us in verse 21. John 16, 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, this is for you. Here's your point. I've heard it suggested that one of the most insane and incredible things to ever come out of a woman's mouth who has had a child is let's have another one. 
Right? I have no experience on the matter. But I'll say this. Jesus is saying that there's such joy at this child that you can even forget. I don't know what that means for you ladies to forget that. But you can put that out and say it was worth it. There is something on the other side greater than the suffering I endured. Something more to hope in. That's what he's saying. There's anticipation. The sorrow and anguish contained in what far surpasses. And I say this with all authority and reverence, ladies. The sorrow of your delivering of a child is far surpassed by the anguish of the dark night of the soul of Christ as he faced the wrath of God. There's something far worse seen in that. And yet that death, that cross is completely overshadowed by the glory of his resurrection. Something infinitely more. Now, you'll hear some people today around the world stand up and they'll talk about Christianity and our hope as though there isn't any more suffering. Is that true? Be honest. Is it true that you're not going to have sorrow anymore in this life? As long as there's death, as long as there's suffering, there's going to remain sorrow. There's going to remain difficulty. The answer, the Christian message is not to pretend things are better than they are. It's not to ignore suffering, but there's a hope that surpasses it. There's a hope to cling to. It's even seen in our text in conjunction with the suffering. See, this world we live in is filled with evil and they do rejoice in death. But Christians as Christians, though there be evil, we're not meant to walk the earth with constant gloom on our faces and sorrow in our hearts. So evident so that everyone looks at us and says, what a pitiful creature. There's not supposed to be this expression of constant anguish being demonstrated to those who see us. But confident joy and anticipation in the midst of sorrow. As I mentioned, we cannot deny the realities of pain and death. We can't deny death in the world, can we, John? We can't deny the fact that people die. It happens every day and it's miserable and it hurts. And yet there's something there's there's hope that must go beyond that. And these things, these necessary sufferings, we must endure them even as Christ had to endure his suffering. He is our model. He is the one we look to as our hope in the midst of suffering and also as an example for us to follow as we suffer. Is that not the argument of the author of the Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 2? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Okay, we're looking to Jesus. What for? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy set before him and he endured the suffering with joy in his heart, knowing what was to come. That's the way we ought to live. That's the reason there should be this anticipation. There's a delivery coming and there's going to be greater joy in what is to come than even the anguish now. That's the point. Verse 22, he goes on and says, So also, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. The primary context 
of the sorrow of these disciples is that Jesus was about to die. And yet their sorrow at the death of Christ would come to an end. Why? The cause for the rejoicing, Jesus tells them, in their hearts and the joy that could not be taken away from them was the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's why the the apostles in the New Testament, they preached Jesus and the resurrection. They said he's raised from the dead. He's got power over death. And they were mocked and jeered because of it. There really is life on this side. On the other side, there's hope after death. And the same glorious promise comes to us as we see him risen from the dead. And know that not only do we see him, but he lovingly sees us. We can have indomitable joy, joy that cannot be dominated or taken away. That's objective. It's not merely subjective, according to my experience, but I can have joy in what is true about his resurrection. Call your attention for a moment. As a Christian, do you struggle with not having joy? Do you struggle with sorrow in your soul? What is the answer to the sorrow you feel as a Christian? Look at your front of your bulletin for just a moment. And there's really it's almost unnecessary to read from Matthew Henry here because it's so plain in what Jesus is saying. But here for Matthew Henry, he says, believers, Christians have joy or sorrow according as they have or have not sight of Christ and the tokens of his presence with them. Your joy is bound and determined by whether or not you're seeing Christ. Can you see him? Are you seeing him now? Remember, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit that's promised to us is that Jesus says, I will come to you. I will manifest myself to you by the spirit. You'll see me as he communicates me to you in the word. That's the point. Now. The practical expression. Some of you are sitting there thinking, what is that supposed to look like? though? How is it that I'm going to see Jesus in that way? You see, the, the, the practical expression of Christian joy in the light of Christ's death and his resurrection is experienced in three primary ways. Three primary ways. The first one is this. How is it you are going to have real and abiding joy because of what Jesus is saying here? The first way is the glory of the atonement for our sin. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. The glory of the atonement for our sin. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. First, joy. First thing to give you joy, the sin that you have committed, Christ nailed to his cross so that when the father poured his wrath out on him, it was taking care of your sin, covering it forever with his blood. First source of Christian joy. To the foundation of Christian joy. Jesus died for me. Second is our spiritual resurrection from the dead. So what Jesus died for me. The scripture says we're born in sin and shaped in iniquity. And we've got hearts of stone that don't love God. 
What connects me to the reality and joy that Christ died for me? It is regeneration or a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Just look again in Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12. You're already there. It says in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the first point is the glory of the atonement. You have you're going to not see him and then you're going to see him. He's going to die and he's going to raise from the dead. And that's how you're justified. The second thing is you who were dead in sin, you who deserve judgment and have a stony heart that hates God. Something's got to be done about that. There's death. You're dead. You must be raised, resurrected. The pattern of resurrection seen in that and even the expression. Think on this. How impossible is it that someone becomes a Christian? How impossible is it that someone has faith and love for God? It says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The impossibility of Jesus with all of that sin upon him to rise from the dead. That's how impossible it was for you as a lost person to come to faith. Only the spirit of God can do such a work in your soul to give you life from the dead. The second joy. The second joy in light of his resurrection. By the way, that resurrection spiritually was bought for you at the cross. That you are able to be raised to this new life by what Jesus accomplished. And here's the third. The third expression of Christian joy is found in Jesus' second coming. Look with me now at 1 Corinthians 15. The joy at Jesus' second coming. 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read the last nine verses for you here and think about this in light of what is what is the source of your joy and the reality of his death and his resurrection? It is this. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the, per- the nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Pause. You remember from the beginning, we've sinned, we've fallen, death enters the world. That's what it means to be perishable. That you can die and be destroyed. He says that kind of a person's not getting into the kingdom of God. Not that which is perishable. Continue, he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery: we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing That in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Here's the picture. In all three of these things, you have the picture of a death and a resurrection. 
There's the death of Christ to cover your sin. There's His resurrection from the dead that justifies your soul. And then you have the experience of regeneration. You're dead in sin. You're resurrected spiritually to new life. And then here's the final stage. Jesus is coming again. There's a trumpet going to sound. There's a voice going forth. And the dead in Christ will rise first. You're going to die physically. And yet there's a resurrection to come. He says you'll not see me and then you will see me. You see the glory of these things. If you're convinced in your soul of these truths related to the resurrection. No one. No one will be able to take your joy from you. The last two verses for our consideration today, at least in John 16, that is, is 23 and 24. Let's take them together. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, the profound truth that Jesus is making known here is that ultimate joy is directly related to our communion with and access to the Father. Do you understand? He's saying this joy, this fullness of joy and experience of these things is going to be worked out practically in one aspect of your communion with God. And he says it's prayer, asking the Father for something. It's connection to God. Now, it would be easy for us to get bogged down arguing about all the, the carnal things that people want to ask God for in light of these verses. Let it be settled. Let the matter be settled once and for all from previous messages, even in John, that true Christian prayer will be centered on the revealed will and purpose of God. Our desires aligned with God's desires and reflecting his will and not selfish ambition. And we've heard that a number of times. The point that's most clearly demonstrated in these last two verses is this. That those of us who are in Christ have direct access to the Father as a result of His death and resurrection. There's no one who gives access to the Father except the Son. For there is, no, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Do you see how that's related to Easter and the resurrection? One God and one mediator. You're not getting to God the Father apart from the Son. What's the relevance of this? Consider this from Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus is saying, you're not going to see me. What for? He's going to the cross to die. And as he dies, he's forsaken of God. Whatever that means, he's forsaken of God as a man that man might be restored and never again forsaken by God. And his resurrection, his ascension back to the father is this proclamation to us that says all those for whom he died would never again be separated from the father. You have access to the father because of what he did. He who said, why have you forsaken me? You as a Christian can never say to God, why have you forsaken me? You can never get to the point where God's not lovingly interested in hearing you. There's a relationship and it's bound to the fact that he rose from the dead physically in his flesh. 
final charge is a proclamation, not an argument, but a plea in light of a proclamation of truth in the word of God. The resurrection from the dead. What does it mean? Peter says this on the day of Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. For certain. You see, you don't have the apostles, as I mentioned earlier, just pontificating about what might or might not happen or when or when not Christ might return. They say there's certainty. Let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Paul expresses the same thing in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, as we bring this to a close. He says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, that we would all glory in this resurrection. Why? Because there's nothing that compares to what's promised to us in Christ. There is a hope. There's a hope that covers all your sin. There's a hope, a resurrection life in your soul that will take you forward. And give you victory even over the things you're enslaved to now if you're not a Christian. And there's hope even in death. You will be raised and have endless eternal life in Him. Repent and believe in this mighty Savior. What He says to us today? Get a little while and we'll see Him again. I believe all three stages of this are necessary for us. For starters, if you've not come to see that Jesus' atoning death for your sin satisfied God's wrath for you, none of this other stuff matters, really. Well, what does it matter if you're not covered by the blood of Christ? That's the first thing. Second thing, think on this. As Christians, Jesus, I believe one of the fulfillments of this, the primary is obviously His resurrection from the dead. You'll see me again. But also this. As Christians, he promises we'll see him again according to the ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. That we can know God and see him in the Spirit by the Word. To know him that way. And the third is to see him face to face. We're raised from the dead. Now, if that is the description that we're meant to understand at joy of something even such as childbirth, what a thing to rejoice in. Life. Can we summarize the message today in that way? Life. That's what all of this points to. And there's only life in Him. Everything else is death. He gives life abundantly to those who trust Him. Repent and believe in just this Jesus. Glory in His resurrection. With that, I'll ask you to bow with me. And we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Oh God, I thank You again for this Word. For the testimony of Your truth that does not change. Father, that we're covered. That every crevice, anything that might cause us to doubt, You've covered and taken care of. You've left no stone unturned. For Your glory. And we get to benefit from that glory. And know You. Know Your Son. I pray, Father. I pray. That you would fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ.
We ask in His name. Amen.